Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to OSHA's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at OSH.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment, and if you love what you're hearing... And I know you love what you're hearing. Please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. California has long been a place of arrival. People coming from different states and different countries, sometimes looking for a safe haven. We know that California is a beacon of hope for many. We know California. Right now, that includes patients from states where it's hard to get a safe legal abortion. For ways to speed up their work of making California an abortion sanctuary for all. Or states that have criminalized medical treatment for transgender youth. California could soon start providing legal refuge to displaced transgender kids and their families. State Democrats California has also tried to be a welcoming state for immigrants. I'm proud of the fact that over the last decade, California has taken in more refugees than any other state in America, and I'm proud of the fact... Sometimes, though, our state's efforts conflict with federal policy. Under the Trump administration, for example, the rules changed about just who qualifies for asylum. I'm Sasha Coca, and today on the California Report magazine, how that's made things rocky for immigrants fleeing persecution based on their gender. KQED's immigration editor, Taiki Hendricks, has been following a woman who escaped years of abuse in Guatemala and finally made it here to California. And just a heads up to listeners— If you're tuning in with kids, you might want to tune in later on our podcast because this story deals with sexual and domestic violence. When I meet up with Daisy Ramirez at her home in San Francisco's Bayview District, she doesn't want to talk about her asylum claim with her kids in earshot. So we take them to a nearby park. Six-year-old Alexis skips down the block with his big sister Stephanie, who's eight. But they stop to show their mom a trail of ants running up a tree. When we get to the playground, the kids take off running. Daisy says Stephanie and Alexis are inseparable, maybe because of what they went through in Guatemala, a life of captivity and violence. Three years ago, when Daisy was 21, she managed to escape with the children, who were three and five, leaving her town in the rural highlands of Guatemala for the first time. Getting away was one of the best decisions of her life, Daisy says, but it was the hardest. She grew up one of eight kids. Her father often beat his wife and mistreated his daughters. And then, when Daisy was 14, her father sold her to the owners of a bar, possibly, she says, to settle a drinking debt. 
te llevaba como cinco años uh, con una familia que me hacía tratar como esclava y pues me trataba muy mal. Entonces yo llegué ahí a los 14 años, mi papá me fue a vender. The bar was half an hour's walk from her family, but she was never allowed to return home. She says the bar owners treated her like a slave, putting her to work without pay, cooking, cleaning, serving customers, forcing her to wear skimpy outfits. Men in the bar would grope her, and she was handed over to the owner's 18-year-old son like property. She says the son, Demblercinto, routinely beat and raped her, and she got pregnant with two children. Stephanie was born when Daisy was just 15. Yo tuve mucho miedo en todo el tiempo, pero yo ver a mis hijos creciendo. She says every day she lived in fear. Dembler had threatened that the day she tried to escape or ask anyone for help, he would kill her and hurt the children. It was the kids who gave her the courage to break free. Yo realmente no quería que ellos sufrieran lo mismo que yo estaba sufriendo. Era para mí muy difícil ver cómo les pegaba. As they grew, she saw their father get more and more aggressive, raging and whipping them with his belt. I didn't want them to suffer the way I was suffering, she says. One morning in February 2019, the Cintos went out to run errands, and she was alone with the kids for once. She saw her chance and took it. Yo dije, no, es hoy, porque si no lo intento hoy, no, si no tomo esa decisión, ¿cuándo va a ser? Daisy was 21 by then, no longer a child herself. And she thought, if not today, when? Y, y salí. She was terrified, but she grabbed a wad of cash, bundled the children out the door, and flagged down a bus to the nearest big town. Mi pensamiento fue... From the town of Coatepeque, she set out for Mexico, where she prayed the Cinto family wouldn't find her. In Mexico, Daisy and her kids sometimes slept in bus stations. They rarely had enough to eat. But she could see the children were growing calmer, and she was growing braver. Tantos años encerrados, no conocía nada. Era muy difícil para mí tener conversaciones con alguien porque yo tenía miedo. After so many years of captivity, it was terrifying to have conversations with strangers. But she knocked on doors and offered to wash laundry and clean houses. She bought a cheap cell phone and spoke to her mother for the first time in six years. Her mom told her her sisters had moved to San Francisco and Daisy set out to find them. It took months, but Daisy and the kids finally reached the Arizona border. They were detained for three days. She told her story and asked for protection, and immigration officials gave her a court date for an asylum hearing. They also agreed to release her to a sister in San Francisco, who paid for bus tickets for Daisy and the kids. Her fate would land in the hands of Joseph Park, one of the toughest immigration judges in San Francisco. In Judge Park's first three years on the bench, he denied asylum nearly 87% of the time. If he ruled against Daisy, she and her kids could be deported.
Asylum's not available to everyone who's suffered harm, even brutal violence, in their home country. Here's how it works. A person has to prove they have, quote, a well-founded fear of persecution based on their race, religion, nationality, or political opinion, or their membership in what's called a particular social group. But in 2018, President Trump's Attorney General Jeff Sessions issued a ruling saying women fleeing domestic violence weren't one of those groups and didn't deserve asylum because it was, quote, private criminal activity. You do not get to come to America if you have a private threat or a, someone personally attacks you. You do not get to uh, have asylum for that. That bucked three decades of refugee law that recognizes gender-based violence, says Karen Musalo. She argued and won one of the first domestic violence asylum cases and directs the Center for Gender and Refugee Studies at UC Hastings Law School. You know, we had the recognition going back to the 80s that women's rights are human rights and governments have the responsibility to protect the human rights of their citizens. Last year, President Biden's Attorney General Merrick Garland reversed the Sessions decision. But asylum seekers like Daisy still face a murky situation in immigration court. The law is unclear on what a particular social group really is. When Biden came into office, he promised to define it, but that hasn't happened yet. The morning of her final asylum hearing in immigration court last November, Daisy woke before dawn, shaky with nerves. She made a cup of tea to calm herself. Then she combed out her long brown hair, put on a flowered skirt, and headed to the courthouse. She had prepared to testify three times, and each time the hearing was postponed because of COVID. Daisy and her legal team and I were the only ones in the courtroom. A clerk turned on a video link, and the judge, the interpreter, and the ICE prosecutor appeared on a large screen. I wasn't allowed to record the hearing, so I later filed a public records request for the audio. It's pretty scratchy. This is uh, Immigration Judge Joseph White Park in San Francisco, California. Immigration Judge Park Park. begins. Uh, We are here in the removal proceedings of Ms. Daisy Josefina Ramirez uh, Rabanales. Daisy and her lawyer, Monica Valencia, of the Oakland nonprofit Centro Legal de la Raza, look at each other and take a deep breath. Do you swear or affirm the testimony you provide in these proceedings will be the truth? Monica walks Daisy through her testimony, the story of her life, really, and of too many women and girls in her part of rural Guatemala. And why do you believe your dad sold you to them? Daisy says her father believed women were worthless and treated them like property. When she was 11 or 12, Daisy's mother went to the police after she was beaten bloody by Daisy's dad. But Daisy recalls the police said it was a domestic matter and they wouldn't intervene. A few years later, she herself was being beaten by Dembler Sinto. Can you tell me what kinds of words he would say to you when he abused you? She says he told her she was a whore and his slave. I can see how painful it is for Daisy to relive these memories. She tells me later Monica taught her breathing exercises to help stay grounded. 
She testifies that police officers sometimes came to drink at the bar and saw her, a girl with bruises, but they never tried to help. Daisy's testimony is backed up by reports Monica submitted to the court, showing laws in Guatemala to protect women and girls are not enforced, and gender-based violence is widespread, including parents selling daughters into forced marriages. Daisy is lucky to have help with her case. Not everyone in immigration court has a lawyer. But even so, winning asylum is a high bar. Then it's the judge's turn. Daisy and Monica watch the video monitor anxiously. Ma'am, uh, the court has determined uh, that uh, you are eligible and deserve asylum. So you and your children now will be asylees in the United States. Daisy thanks him, and the video feed clicks off. She and her lawyers stand up and hug each other. Everyone cries. Then they file out of the courthouse and head to a coffee shop to celebrate. Daisy orders a hot chocolate with whipped cream. Over three years in San Francisco, Daisy and her kids have adjusted to a life where they're not in fear. She started attending her sister's church, and there she met a man she knew when they were kids back in the village. With him, she felt something new, trust, and a sense of safety. They got married, and now her kids Stephanie and Alexis have a baby sister, Irma. Asylum has given Daisy another kind of security. She can build a life here. She wants to go to school. She never got past seventh grade and find a good job. But for now, the main thing is to be sure her kids feel safe and enjoy their childhood, something she never could do. She takes them to the playground almost every day. Quiero que su mente esté tranquila y que disfruten sus niñez. Solo una vez es una niña en toda la vida, entonces creo que ellos merecen estar felices. And now that she knows what it feels like to be safe, Daisy says she wants that for other women, too. Sentirnos seguro es una sensación incomparable, pero las mujeres también que están luchando, que le echen ganas, que tengan fuerza. Sometimes she talks with other women who've been abused. Don't forget how strong you are, she tells them. Si pudimos salir de algo tan difícil, pues nosotros podemos enfrentar a todo lo que venga. If we can get out of something as bad as this, we can handle anything that comes our way. For The California Report, I'm Tyke Hendricks. a very different kind of immigration story, one about how food makes its way across oceans and continents. We've brought you a lot of stories on the show about how iconic California food and drinks got their start. We've called it our Golden State Plate series, from the martini to Rocky Road ice cream. Today, we're diving into the origin story of Monterey Jack cheese. You might guess with a name like Monterey Jack that it comes from the beachside town of Monterey. 
But there are rumors that Monterey Jack was actually created in Pacifica, a foggy town just south of San Francisco. Reporter Christopher Beale takes us on a journey to find the true origins of Monterey Jack cheese. Here in San Francisco, when you have a question about cheese, you might stop by a place like the Rainbow Grocery Co-op and talk to a cheesemonger. Basically, it's an old-fashioned word for someone who buys and sells cheese. I'm in the business of cheese. Truffle Tremor over there representing California. If we go over here, we'll see... That's the, uh, Gordon Zola Edgar, and he's been working with and around cheese for almost three decades and took me on a tour of his cheese department at the co-op. This is where our basic cheeses are. So it's like, you know, Jack's Cheddar's, organic Jack's Cheddar's, you know, domestic Swiss grated cheeses and stuff like that. Okay, so in the grand scheme of cheeses, mm-hmm. where do you place Monterey Jack? Like, what is Monterey Jack cheese for? Monterey Jack, it kind of lives on this, like, parallel life to mild cheddar. They're both your basic, like, pantry cheeses. Monterey Jack, you could say, is basically a cheddar with a little more moisture. The flavor of a Jack cheese is really mild. The texture is soft, it cuts, and melts easily. Like, it's not a sexy cheese, but it's been made in one form or another in our region for hundreds of years. I'm talking as far back as the late 1700s. Spanish missions, which were located all over what is now California, made this simple white cheese. And there's a likelihood that that cheese from those missions, then known as Queso del País, evolved into the cheese we know as Monterey Jack. But that may not be the story at all. Some people say that it got its name from the Jack press that was used to make the cheese. Others say it was named after David Jacks, who uh, kind of, uh, well, that's a long story, but, um, <laughs> but who, who, let's just say, popularized the cheese. David Jack was quite a scoundrel. That's Kathleen Manning. She's the former president of the Pacifica Historical Society. He was like an early capitalist, right? Like yes, kind of. I, I would, I would say so. David Jack was this Scottish guy who came to California during the gold rush in the mid 1800s. He sold some firearms for a huge profit in his first days in California, and then went to the mountains searching for gold, which he did not find. So Jack, who around this time started calling himself David Jacks returned to the Bay Area and made his way to Monterey in 1850. And this is where his reputation as sort of a jerk begins. At the end of the Mexican-American War, Jax was involved in a scheme that ultimately allowed him to buy the entire town of Monterey and much of the adjacent land at a steep discount. A lot of shady land deals. And once he owned everything in and around Monterey, he started loaning money out to people. And when they couldn't pay... He would foreclose, and, well, you can imagine he didn't make a lot of friends this way. He was able to take advantage of a lot of people. He has a very bad reputation. The town even tried a few times to basically buy itself back from Jax, even sending a case to the U.S. Supreme Court, but Jax ultimately won. Aside from land, Jax had another business interest, dairy. There were hundreds of dairies making milk and various types of cheese around Monterey at the time, and many were on Jax's land. And one of those dairies was making this mild, soft, white cheese. Jax would market and sell that cheese with his name on it, and the official Jack cheese was born. The original recipe for the cheese that Jax would claim and sell as his own could have come from any number of places. Jax certainly didn't invent it, but where did it come from? 
it's really hard to know. There is a claim that it originated in Pacifica. So I asked Kathleen Manning, was Monterey Jack cheese actually created in Pacifica? Yes, it was. If you've ever been to Rockaway Beach in Pacifica, there is a huge point that juts out into the Pacific Ocean on the north end of the beach. And it's there on Maury's Point where some believe the recipe for what would become known as Monterey Jack entered the United States. Stefano Mori brought a recipe from Italy, and they certainly produced it here. There used to be this restaurant up on the hill called Mori's Place, and one of the things they sold was cheese. Kathleen and the folks at the Pacifica Historical Society have this old cookbook called Eating Around San Francisco, and they say a passage in the book supports their claim. What year is this book from? Uh, 1938. Oh, and then right down here, bold at the top of this chapter, says Ray Morey's Place near Rockaway Beach. Would you mind reading that to me, if you can? I was interested to discover that it was Stefano Mori who first made what we today call Monterey cheese. Having been born and brought up in Italy, Stefano and his wife learned there how to make cheese. They made it on their Mori Point property. So the Morris had this family friend named Baldacci, and he worked with them at Morris Point and learned how to make their cheese. The cheese was very good. Baldacci and the Morris had sort of a falling out, and this is where the link to Monterey happens. Kathleen reads on. He learned how to make the cheese and went to Monterey and manufactured it on a commercial scale. As he was on the Jack Ranch, the cheese is now known as Jack, or Monterey cheese. There, in black and white, is Pacifica's claim to Jack cheese. Now, not everyone is sold on this theory that the recipe came from Pacifica. It's been argued that a local woman who sold homemade queso del país door-to-door could have been who Jack's took the recipe from. And some think that the cheese isn't named after David Jack's at all. Another cheesemaker in the area used a jack press to make his cheese. It's this device that they use to squeeze moisture out. And it's believed that he sold his cheese under the name Jack Cheese for that reason. Ultimately, it's hard to determine the cold hard facts about this soft, mild cheese. What we do know for sure is that David Jacks would go on to distribute and market the cheese as Jack's Cheese. And eventually, people began asking for Monterey Jack's Cheese across the state and eventually the country and the world. And that cheese would help make Jack's a wealthy man. Pacifica, however, is not taking this alleged theft lying down. The Historical Society felt it was our duty to reclaim the uh, wonderful heritage that we have. And so... We began producing the cheese here and uh, selling it locally, just on a small basis, and people loved it. It's a wonderful, wonderful cheese. This is made by a fine cheesemaker. Kathleen says the Pacifica Historical Society has sold about three tons of their Pacifica Jack cheese, and she gave me some to take home. I'll put a link in the web post of this story for where you can buy your own. The best way is to come to the museum when it's open. And we're open Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays, one to four. And the cheese is always available. We may never know with certainty where Monterey Jack cheese actually originated. It's hard to get a thief like David Jacks to give up that sort of information. But it did ultimately become a staple food our region is famous for. 
But according to the folks in Pacifica, there's always been a chapter missing in the story of this California original Jack Cheese. If you don't know Pacifica, you don't know Jack. Reporter Christopher Beal, he reported this story in collaboration with our friends at the Bay Curious podcast. Their team includes Olivia Allen Price and Katrina Schwartz. Thanks to Jean Bartlett for all her help with this story. Coming up next week on the California Report magazine, we honor Pride Month with a look back at a dark time in our state's LGBTQ history. Until about 50 years ago, it was essentially a crime to be gay, even here in California. A kid skipping school and loitering in a gay neighborhood could get sent to the state mental hospital in Atascadero. Gay men and teens were labeled sexual deviants. Gene Ampon is a man who spent more than two years there, beginning when he was just 16. He talked about that painful time decades later when he was in his 70s. The juveniles were psychopathic delinquents. <laughs> kind of sounds like you know, little monsters. Psychopathic delinquent was a real legal label back then, and judges used it for teens they saw as a nuisance to society. The story of what happened at Atascadero involved brutal torture disguised as treatment. Things like electric shock therapy and sedation. But then a brave psychiatrist decided to blow the whistle on one of those horrific so-called treatments. If the procedure causes danger of death, pain, or anxiety to the patient, it, in our opinion, must be considered an unethical procedure. California's transition from a state that locked up gay people to becoming a leader in the movement for LGBTQ civil rights. That's next week on the California Report magazine. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Victoria Mauleon is our senior editor. Our producer-director is Susie Racho, and our sound engineer is Brendan Willard. Our team also includes Amy Mayer and Amanda Font. And this week, we say goodbye to our intern, Izzy Bloom. You might have heard the documentary she did recently on our show about why she didn't learn her mother's language, Japanese. She told me she'd always planned to raise her children bilingual. I worry about my kids doesn't understand who I am, what I really meant. Not only linguistically, it's just as a, as a person. Even though her mom sang in Japanese to Izzy's brother, she stopped teaching him the language when he was diagnosed with a rare syndrome, and doctors told her raising him bilingual might be too complicated. Izzy brought us that poignant story, along with many others, and now she's beginning a new adventure. She's got a fellowship to expand on a story she reported for us about a land-back project, an organic farm on land returned to Rametush elder Kata Gomes. And one of my younger cousins asked me if I ever heard my mother and my grandmother speak of our indigenous roots, and I said, never. But I think it was a form of protection. Four years ago, Kata's cousin unearthed records from the Spanish missions, revealing their family's lineage to the Rametush. They're one of the tribes the Spanish invaders grouped together as the Ohlone, and they're the original indigenous people of the San Francisco Peninsula. 
For over 100 years, Kata says, people believed the Rametouche were extinct. So we were really fortunate to be able to retrieve that information from the mission records. Because our family, we were the survivors. 80% of the indigenous people who went through the mission system in California did not survive. Now, Kata is working to revitalize the Rametouche language. She's singing Te Kwe Ana Oea, which means honoring Mother Earth. We'll look forward to featuring Izzy's work on our show as she follows the farm's efforts to grow healthy food and distribute it for free to communities that need it most while preserving and celebrating Rametouche culture. Best of luck to you, Izzy. We're going to miss you here on the show. I'm Sasha Koka, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find the link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.